This is Five and Nine, a podcast at the crossroads of magic, work, and economic justice. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 2. I think ritual and routine, maybe it's like the magical version of an everyday thing, right? Like those two words in my mind, they're connected, but one is like surrounded by this air of enchantment and the other one is like very, very boring. And a lot of my thinking around magic has to do with using everyday objects and and writing rituals that enchant everyday objects and everyday surroundings Hmm. into magical tools. Mm -hmm. This is Anna Anshalmina with Five and Nine. This is Dorothy Santos with Five and Nine. And we have a very special guest, Helen Shi Wolf Sheng. They've been working in design and art and amongst many other things within the fields of technology, media, publishing, academia, retail, so many more things for well over a decade. They were a 2018 to 2019 YBCA fellow a 2019 designer in residence at the Headlands Center for the Arts. They've held design residencies at the Oxford Internet Institute, as well as Fordham University's Urban Law Center. Their first book was The Astrological Grimoire, that was published by Chronicle Books in 2019. And they are also the co-author with Virgie Tovar of Body Positive Tarot. In today's episode, as the new moon rises, we're talking with Helen about the magic of the everyday, the lessons from nature we learn from the time we spent outdoors during the pandemic, and a look at the role of spells and rituals in times of change. A spell, as Helen reminds us, is an ambiguous word, meaning both a period or, or spell of time, and also a formula, a set of words or actions considered as having a magical force. Unlike What we see in movies with sparkles and explosions, modern day spells are often ways to set intentionality, open up creative thinking, or make space for healing. And we're excited to share some of Helen's practice with you today. Their work is best seen visually, and we've included some examples and links at thisis5and9.com. But just to describe it briefly, imagine black and white drawings of coyotes, their fur awash in texture and shade as they gaze or jump into or pounce on black portals that are going into space and the portals take the shape of teardrops, funnels, circles, and there's even one that's tucked away beneath one coyote's skin. Helen will be talking about a challenging period in their life and what they learn from these often derided and misunderstood creatures. And we start with growth spells. Helen offers us powerful tools to navigate change and uncertainty and, of course, the everyday. This episode's music was chosen by our guest, and it's called Bow Wow Blues, performed by the original Dixieland Jazz Band in 1921. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Welcome, Helen. Hi, thank you for that intro. I feel so bashful about that because... It's like a lot of things and it feels really scattered. Recently, my partner Vic was mentioning that like when people ask him what I do, it takes a long time for him to explain. Mm-hmm. And there's something about that that is, uh, it feels like I'm still figuring out how to describe myself. It's aligned with what Anna, Shawe, and I have been 
just we always have conversations outside of obviously the episodes. And one of the things that came up was this trend of calling specific roles that people have, like that are multi, multivalent, multifaceted as slashies that that has actually come into vogue or portfolio careers where someone actually has a wide array of skills that I think is also speaks to the time that we're in of change and transition and honoring that people evolve and that, you know, this was even, you know, just to kind of track back to Sydney's episode, which is our our first episode for the season, that you're just never, you're not going to be the same person you were, say, 5'10", even yesterday. (laughs) Maybe the difficulty is, is the beauty too, you know? And I think that's something that gets very deeply at something that I grapple with all the time, even on these small scale levels. Like I just came back from an artist residency and during that time, and it was my first residency in since 2019, I felt all these spaces of social interaction that were at times difficult for me because of the way that the past few years have gone. And I was thinking about this idea of coming into oneself and how sometimes that change and transition, instead of being a space of smoothness, it might be something that's a little jagged and exposes parts of me that I haven't seen in a while or have never seen and how that's a way of coming into myself and changing and transitioning as well. In keeping with the theme of change and transition, we wanted to start with one of your artworks. I have such a a close relationship and connection and such a deep fondness for growth spells. And for those that aren't familiar Mm. with Helen's growth spells, it is an ongoing series of drawings that they have beautifully described as, quote, organic algorithms and non-machines as a response to these major cultural, societal, historical shifts we've experienced. And as we jump into talking about these growth spells, we wanted to read some of the instructions that Helen provides for a collaborative growth spell. They're drawings that look like clumps of foliage or hair bursting forth and little sketch marks that the artist makes over time. And they write, find a comfortable seat, take a minute to find your breath. Take a moment of silence. Think of something you've been turning over in your head that you'd like to spend some time with, a a problem that needs solving, an itch that needs scratching, a hurt that needs healing, a thought that needs polishing, a thread that needs untangling. Sit with it for a minute. Notice how it makes you feel. Hold it in your mind and body as you complete this exercise. Choose a drawing tool intuitively without testing it out. Begin making marks. Notice how the marks form. Do not try to control or plan them. Let them form organically. Other things that may inform your marks. What has already elapsed on the page. The boundary is predefined. Your posture, your emotions, repetition, and what feels good. All marks are valid. This drawing is self-healing. Use it as your cosmic confession booth and worries done. Spells have an aspect of the verbal to them, of language in some way, of duration and of time. And rituals to me feel maybe related, but I tie that a little bit more to actions, to physical actions. And I think these words themselves hold a kind of glamour and power, but maybe 
they can be distilled to things that are very everyday. When I first started referring to these drawings as growth spells, it was around 2017. And as you've noted, the name of the drawings refers to the fact that they expand and take place over time, like a spell, but also refers to the magical notion of a spell and that sort of double entendre. And I actually started the drawings in this form during my first artist residency and first group residency in this remote corner of Iceland. And it was not long after the 2016 election. And that was kind of a a time when I was in a state of disorientation, as many of us were at the time. And while I was there, I started making these drawings and They kind of became a daily meditation for me, sort of a respite. And there were many years where I would sometimes start a drawing and then abandon it. And then that would happen over and over. And so these drawings, growth spells became this way that I was attending to this side of me. It was a trick that I devised for me to get around that by deciding that these drawings were self-healing and much like an organism might heal a wound, the marks and mark making could work that way too. And I can adapt around a mark that I didn't like or incorporate some development into the drawing that maybe initially gave me a bad sensory feeling and maybe lean into that. And in doing so, the drawings themselves became organisms and they started to tell me where they wanted to go. And it became this practice of listening and responding and adapting and channeling. It's almost as it became a conduit to actually, I don't want to use the word expel, but I want to, I want to mm-hmm. push that a little bit more because mm-hmm. I, I'm very curious, I guess, dovetail off of something that you said, because you you mentioned that you developed this practice uh, shortly after the 2016 election, which I think many of us were trying to process a lot of what was happening in the world then and now. Mm-hmm. You know, instead of the word expel, I think I might use the word um, maybe adapt or incorporate. It's not mm-hmm. so much something that I'm I'm trying to get rid of. It's something that I want to recognize and respond to. Mm. With And it's this question of how I might be more responsive to what arises and listen and intuit and and collaborate with that rather than pushing an agenda. There's a narrative aspect to it. There's a performative aspect to it. There's a way that it's crafted to allow a subtle shift to happen and to place trust and agency in the person doing the ritual, at least in the ways that I think of ritual and the ways that I write rituals. Because there are all these ways that we're marketed things to kind of like improve our lives or be more productive or be more observant or all these things that we're like made to buy (laughs) to set up an altar with these particular objects. And a lot of my thinking around magic has to do with using everyday objects and, and writing rituals that enchant everyday objects and everyday surroundings into magical tools Mm -hmm. so that you don't need to participate in a kind of consumerism in order to incorporate these things in your life, even if it might be helpful or fun to do so in the beginning. You know, I go, I go to any clothing store now, just like urban outfitters, right? Or 
-hmm. any bookstore. There's all these magical things that one can buy now, right? Crystals and tarot decks. I see people buying sage. And it's so interesting, like you're saying, that the marketing or the selling of magic is, is very much big business now. Mm -hmm. um, and I just yeah. love this, this practice that you have of bringing that magic and that enchantment into the everyday. And I will say some of the best pens that I've worked with are the free ones <laughs> that you get like with like the logo of a business on it, like at the bank. <laughs> you have this mm -hmm. project that you started in 2020 called Co Coyote Portals. And, mm -hmm. you know, again, it's these really captivating drawings that really showcase your relationship to non-human beings. And I'm just so curious. Well, we're curious. How has that relationship with non-human beings, such as, such as a coyote, for instance, served as a portal for understanding the world and how it has influenced your creative uh, practice and your writing mm -hmm. and as well as your your tarot practice too. Coyotes entered my life and work during a time of change for me. It was one that I had been struggling to adjust to. I had been in an accident and I ended up dealing with a prolonged bout of acute PTSD. And related to that, I went through a period of estrangement from my relationship to magic and spirit. It was really hard for me to find spaces of nuance and spaces of uncertainty during a time when I was really just struggling to to stay alive. And during that time, coyotes seemed to slip through the folds and wandered into my psyche, where they've pretty much remained ever since. I became a, obsessed with these animals and their history in North America and how adaptive they've been in the face of mass extermination and displacement. To say a little bit about the coyote as a symbol in North America, in indigenous American stories, coyote is often one of the fundamental creator deities, and coyote's stories often illustrate the complexities and contradictions of human experience. But when European settler colonizers arrived, they sought to control and exploit the land, right? They brought livestock farming, they deforested large parts of the land, they invented private property, they brought slavery and indigenous genocide. And along with all that, animals were recast according to their alignment with civilization. The coyote was turned into kind of a demi-villain or a kind of vermin, much like pigeons, rats, raccoons, right? They kind of thrive on our margins little too close for comfort, despite also being genetically close enough to the domestic dog, our favorite pet. They're genetically close enough to interbreed with dogs, but they're just distant enough to be considered vermin, just disruptive enough to these capitalist pursuits, right, of mining the land for its resources. Mm -hmm. And along with that, there's this Western binary that entered as well that was not present in this land before, right? You you have these binaries of good versus evil, prey versus predator, civilized versus wild. So you can kind of see this um, play out in Western animal stories, cartoons, 
children's stories, right? So now coyotes are, are one of the most exterminated mammals in, in North America. Around half a million coyotes are killed by the U.S. government every year. And typically for most animals, this is, this is a quick route to extinction, right? Mm-hmm. But for some reason, coyotes have defied extinction, and mm-hmm. they ended up scattering and migrating across the continent in every direction. And today, they're present in every major city in North America, where they live up to twice as long as in the wild. And this kind of adaptation, it's called fish and fusion adaptation. It has to do with being a particular kind of animal who can quickly adapt to different social configurations, whether large groups, small groups, in pairs, or solitary. And that helps the animal adapt to unfamiliar climates, unfamiliar landscapes, unfamiliar food sources. It probably does not come as a surprise to either of you that this adaptation is also present in in humans. Uh, Notably, those of us who have had a history of trauma as a result of colonization, persecution, displacement. And so my initial interest in coyotes was seeing this sort of metaphor of the immigrant displacement narrative and the story that I recognized in my own family of journeying long distances far from home, settling in the margins and carrying on within limitations. For a time, I had been struggling with how to think about myself in my artwork and how to bring myself and these various markers of identity to my work. And I I felt like some of those markers of identity were kind of imposed rather than chosen. And so there was like a bit of disconnect for me. And maybe that's a, like a diasporic experience, or maybe it's like a response to the sort of institutional expectation for artists of color to mine our own identities and and to educate the public. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. But but art was also this like really important space of inquiry for me and a space where these questions can remain expansive. I found myself turning to what I'd learned about coyotes and other wild canids in order to ask these questions while kind of distancing myself from the specificities of my lineage and experience. And they became this portal like you mentioned, for me to think about things like intergenerational trauma, about aspects of power and control and our relationships to place. Eventually, I did start observing actual coyotes in the Bay Area. It took me a while to actually see them because it took me a while to navigate the land and to reconnect to some some dormant animal instincts. I haven't always had a good relationship with the outdoors. Being in nature doesn't always bring about the positive psychological effects that people claim it has. Um, It's not a given for me. And in many cases, the opposite is true. So the coyotes ended up being a portal to that too, taking me to places I would typically feel anxious or unsafe in. And I've become a person who hikes, which is really wild to me. <laughs> I had always I had always hated it. In the past few years, I've befriended a local naturalist who's been studying and documenting the coyotes of San Francisco for the past 15 years. They've taught me a lot about their behaviors, the ways that they're individuals. I started watching them through long lenses and learning to recognize them by appearance in order to track their individual whereabouts over time. And in doing so, I've also learned that my presence observing them does affect them. Hmm. 
that does change their behaviors and their relationships to the land. And this idea that observation is, is neutral is a myth. And that's something I'm having to contend with too, being part of an ecosystem, being interconnected and attempting to minimize my impact and presence and also deal with these sort of greater anxieties about climate change and the ways that capitalism is wreaking havoc on the earth and those effects are, are being experienced and distributed so unevenly. During a talk that Walter Kutundu gave this past summer, actually at IO, he mentioned something about the changing of bird songs because they are based mm. on the humans that inhabit that space as well. And admittedly, I myself have become someone who enjoys hikes as well, having been born <laughs> and raised in San Francisco, but my partner really enjoys hikes. And I remember we went on a hike and I was going to play a song at a preserve. And then he stopped me and he said, mm. oh, please don't do that. And he was very gentle. He said, I, I know you're excited to play me this song, but because this is a preserve, I'm not sure if you're aware that the bird songs can actually change based on the sound pollution. It just makes me think about, for me, during the high lockdowns, there's spent a lot of time outdoors and encountered so many animals, coyotes, uh, a bear, bobcats, vultures. Mm. Mm-hmm. Wow. wow. And there's a sense of the living world of nature, of this collision, really, that I think is occurring because, I, you know, I was remembering going up into the mountains and seeing in a campsite and a bear came to visit me and my camping partner. It was there, it came at night, its eyes were glowing and kind of descended into the space and came after our food. It was one of the most terrifying experiences I'd been through. Obviously the bear eventually left and I'm, I'm okay. We're okay. In the morning I noticed the squirrels were very fat, very, very plump. And I realized that the campsite we were in was was like a known place for, for animals to come for food. That the very act of being there had had shifted our relationship and animals' relationship with that space and had understood that there'd be sources of food there. And it became this portal for me to think about, oh my gosh, climate change. We're encroaching on Mm -hmm. so many natural territories and Mm -hmm. spaces. And there's Mm -hmm. so many lessons I gained from these experiences with the animals. And and it it seemed like it it was such a unique time, right? There are all these articles about quote-unquote, nature is healing itself. And that, of course, was not true, right? We're still mm-hmm. harming yeah. nature. But for a moment, for a brief moment, it felt like capitalism stopped and human society as a whole was reevaluating its relationship with the natural world. And how we hold on to those insights, I don't know. Having just spent the past two weeks at this artist residency and how I've coped with change personally. And that led me to thinking about how when I'm in a space of change or a time of disorientation, I just wrote a list of a number of things that sometimes help me when I'm in a space of change. Sometimes it might be a daily ritual or routine. I think ritual and routine, maybe it's like the magical version of an everyday thing, right? Like those two words in my mind, they're connected. But one is like 
surrounded by this air of enchantment and the other one is like very very boring finding some way of something kind of steady to do daily i was also thinking about the fact that i brought with me these familiar things these comfort objects that helped me to situate and adapt to an unfamiliar space it might be something that you wear or you keep in your pocket or something that helps you sleep something that you place in your space. And then another thing that that came up, I've been reading this book, The Man Who Could Move Clouds. It's by Ingrid Rojas Contreras. And it's this memoir about the writer and her mother and grandfather and how they, they share this connection to the spirit world. And in the book, her mother, who for a long time worked as a healer and in divination, says something like, nobody wants the truth, but everybody wants a story. I'm paraphrasing. And that reminded me of how, you know, in my tarot practice, often I'm reading for someone who's undergoing a change or transition and what the cards can do in that situation is create a story, create a, a narrative structure that might be affirming or might give them a better sense of agency or a better sense of space to adapt, especially when they're feeling anything but when it feels very unsteady and disorienting. I was curious about the two of you and if there are things that you do when you're in a space that's unfamiliar and what things you do to kind of find footing. It feels like, an, especially especially the past two years, self-soothing is a skill, one in which so many of us have had to practice and exercise. And for me, it starts with deep breathing. Mm -hmm. um, I've been studying yoga and the ayama breath techniques and the different ways one might become more mindful of their breath, in which the breath and the body kind of interact with feelings of anxiety and uncertainty. And then at the same time, there's mantra practice. What are the ways we affirm, affirm our perspectives, our values, the way we navigate the world? One, one analogy I've been thinking about is how we can't control the waves in the ocean. We can't control whether they're strong or whether they're weak. And life is just like that. But what we do get better at over the years is getting better at riding those waves. Um, we yes. become more skilled at that, hopefully, if we enough practice. Mm -hmm. But like you're saying, shift my perspective, shift my viewport to understand mm -hmm. that these moments have changed. Sometimes there are also opportunities to gain wisdom. I started petting my plants. <laughs> so mm -hmm. when I wake up... I love that. And I, well, you're the one who... I credit you for getting me into this uh, green, I guess, what is it? Green, like the lover of plants stage in my life. Want green to thumb. Green thumb. <laughs> yes. This, this green thumb stage of my life. You know, oftentimes we don't actually take a look at our plants too carefully. We just kind of notice when we notice, but what if every day we looked at them? We, you know, I, I pet my cat every day. She's really great at sleeping. Right. So she's on the couch. I, I'll pass by her when I take a break. I'm walking around the apartment, but it's a way to ground. But I started when I when I pet her on the head, I started realizing, well, how come I don't do this with my plants? And I started to notice different things. I started to notice their growth patterns, their leaves more. But the other thing I thought of in being in a different place, this is kind of inspired by what you shared and, and being at being at this artist residency recently is 
you know, my mom always told me about duende, you know, growing up, there's like these little beings in every place that you go to. You know, I, I felt that my mom was teaching me about land acknowledgements before we were doing them, because that's an indigenous mm-hmm. practice, actually, where you go to a land, you don't live there, you're a visitor. So what do you do when you're a guest? You honor the land. I visit and I'm not bearing anything but well wishes and an open heart and an expansive one because you want the you want the spirits and and whoever dwells on that that land to know you want to be in community. There are these walks that I do regularly even though I'm walking in solitude, I'm never alone. There's sort of the non-human aspects of the environment and often human aspects the plants and the birds and the bugs and on a good day the coyotes will say hello and slip back into the grass or the or the bushes or the trees in those times i feel so grateful to be alive and to be amongst them and to be a visitor and a guest Five and Nine is an independent podcast and newsletter at the crossroads of magic, work, and economic justice. This show is produced by Dorothy Santos, Xiaowei Wang, and me, Anna An Xiaomina. And it's hosted by Dorothy and Anna. Well, this podcast is always free if you enjoyed it. We invite you to buy us a virtual cup of coffee. You can subscribe on Substack for just $6 a month. Your generous support helps cover our production costs and honoraria for our guest speakers. Paying subscribers get access to additional content like how-tos, journaling prompts, tarot exercises, amongst other resources to support you in your work and your career. Find us at thisis5and9.com and on Apple, Spotify, Google, and wherever you listen to podcasts. The background music for our closing is Ain't We Got Fun, a foxtrot composed by Richard Whiting and performed by the Benson Orchestra of Chicago. This and the episode music are part of 400,000 sound recordings made available in the public domain this year. And it's all music that would have been popular during the time of the creation of the Rider-Waite-Smith deck, one of the most popular and influential tarot decks in the world. Thanks for listening, and we wish you comfort and ease in these times of great change and transition. Remember to breathe deeply, drink plenty of water, and take a moment of joy wherever and whenever you can.